Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Oh boy, on this one, we are truly talking to one of the biggest names in modern weed in more ways than one. Isn't that right, Bean? Yeah, actually in two ways, because much like our recent episode about Jack Herrer, Rhymes with Terror. 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 Today we are telling the story of a strain that is named for a person. The person is here, and the strain is one of the most beloved in the expanded Weediverse. We are, of course, talking with Chemdog. The legendary Chemdog. He started his cannabis journey as a self-proclaimed Kind bud snob on the Grateful Dead lot. Maybe you've met this kind of guy, which is where he scored some truly magic beans. Now, longtime listeners may know Magic Beans was, of course, my stage name during my very brief career as an illusionist. But uh, <laughs> here, beans refer to cannabis seeds. That is a grower slang. And Chem Dog is going to take us through the entire story how he went from being just a guy who loves cannabis to the parent of one of the most influential strains, which led to many, many popular strains today. Yes, and much like the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, it's got its ups, it's got its downs. These magic beans bring him to magical realms. But like many stories here on Great Moments in Weed History, you know, we are going to have some dips and dives. But it's a beautiful story that describes cannabis culture at a time when it was all about sharing. It truly is an important piece of cannabis history. Yes, younger listeners, before there were dispensaries, before there were delivery services, before there were apps, there was the Grateful Dead that just carried with them a traveling circus of wonderments, which of course included a lot of the best cannabis and the best cannabis strains. So this is a great story for deadheads. This is a great story for heads interested in the history of cannabis strains. And it's a great story about a person who has been on this scene for a long time, had ups and downs, but I'm going to give you that great moments in weed history promise this one has a very, very happy ending. Yep, that is right. And just an excellent conversation with someone whose wares we've been joyously smoking for many, many, many years. Now, before we get into it, we'd like to remind you that we had a weedathon recently and it went really well and it's over now, but we still need money. So. <laughs> <laughs> So if you already support us on Patreon, thank you so much. We really appreciate you. And if you do not, please go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and check us out. We provide our patrons with all kinds of fun bonus materials, and we'd love for you to get in on it for just a few bucks a month supporting a podcast that you know and love. So please go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and give us a shot. Yes, if you are already a Patreon member, you are probably watching the video version of this. I'm waving to you right now so that you know that this was... Man, we're both waving! It's so exciting! <laughs> what could be a better use of, I don't know, fifty, dollars $100,000 a month at that level? We will come to your house. We will sesh with you. We'll bring you, I don't know, an ounce of weed at that $500,000 level. <laughs> uh, we will make this podcast twice a day, every day for a yes. year. 
Yes. From every year for the rest of our lives. (laughs) (laughs) We're down. If you'd like to extend that deal, please check us out. GreatMomentsInWeedHistory.com. Now, as you're about to hear, Chemdog had some very difficult times on this 20-year cannabis odyssey, but he's landed in a great place, as being mentioned. And if you're lucky enough to live in Massachusetts, you can now find the real deal Chemdog grown by the man himself in Canna Provisions dispensaries. So Massachusetts folks, New England folks, go get yourself some Chem Dog. You will not be sorry. No, you will not. I gotta say, my first encounters with Chem Dog the Man and Chem Dog the Strain were well more than a decade ago. We're gonna talk a little in the episode. He used to come by the High Times office as a very, very, very welcome guest into those hallowed halls. And man, word would go out days in advance to uh, get prepared for that. And we had one hard rule. You could not ride the elevator in our otherwise square office building with Chemdog in your pocket during business hours because there was not the bag that could contain it. Too loud. Too loud. Simply too loud. (laughs) This shit is fantastic. I first came across it when my drug dealer in New York smoked me out on it for the first time and I was completely blown away. I realized that this was the parent of so much weed that I really, really love. So yeah, man, this is definitely an important strain to both of us personally, an important strain to the entire American weed escape, weed diverse. And it's just really fun to talk to somebody who has been in the game for as long as Chem Dog. All right, so I have got a fatty boy, gassy boy, rolled up here, ready to puff on. Bean, what do you got going on? Well, Still waiting on that next trip to Massachusetts to smoke some chem with chem. That's going to be a wonderful, great moment for us. Hopefully, we'll be there maybe to do a live show. Until then, also our beloved sponsor, Podtones. I've got one of these rosin vape pens ready to go. But what? You're not ready? Come on. How many times have we done this show? You gotta see this coming. We do the intro, we beg you for money a little bit, we get you psyched up, and then we're like, we're gonna get high. It should not be surprising. I'm not shaming you, I'm not blaming you. I'm actually giving you a very easy out. You just gotta hit pause, and that'll give you all the time you need to roll a joint, to split a blunt, to pack a bong, to indabulate a dab, to rub uh, lotions all over yourself, and to eat like 20 edibles. Whatever it takes to get you to the place where you want to get in the hot box time machine with us, because when you are ready, we'll be ready for another great, great moment, moment in weed history. Greg Krasnowski, the legendary chem dog. If you've ever smoked that weed or any of the many, many, many famous strains that are derived from it, you owe this guy a thank you. Chem dog, we always start with the same question when we've got a guest, and I am especially curious as to your green origin story 
When was the first time you remember coming across the plant? When I was about 16 years old, I started smoking. And all of a sudden, after I started smoking, I always wanted to start growing right away. So Not everyone drinks a beer for the first time and thinks, like, I need to set up a vat in my garage and start brewing this <laughs> shit. What was it about weed that spoke to you so quickly? We weren't really smoking the best weed. We were smoking brickweed back then, a lot of commercial brickweed. wasn't really too much kind bud, as they say, going around back then. Once in a while, you'd see it and you'd smoke. You'd be like, "Wow!" I believe the first plant I ever saw was outside, and I was like, "Wow, this is this is this is something I want to do." You know, I, if you can grow your own, you'll have your own green bud. You won't be smoking this commercial bud anymore. And I love smoking pot. Take us to the moment. Where were you when you realized, "Oh, there's weed," and then there's really good weed. There was one guy in our town that had this crazy skunky weed. And I only would see it once. And after that, it was a Grateful Dead lot, basically. That's where I became, a, as I would call it, a kind bud snob. So the Grateful Dead lot, obviously the band traveled all over the country and before the show for hours or sometimes days, people would congregate. Often there'd be a few people left in your town three weeks, three months, three years later who just didn't didn't catch that ride in the VW bus onto the next show. This is a traveling circus circus meets the ren fair meets open air drug market meets place to find out about natural foods meets place to probably meet a biker who might stab you in the neck so there's a lot going on how did you on the lot encounter fine cannabis and how did that start to change your orientation towards this plant we just would go to the lots and start scoring the lots to try to find great bud because people, like you said, were coming all over from all different parts of the country and, and they would be bringing all their crafts and goods. And the people that did grow would be bringing all their bud to the lot and sell it. Really opened up my eyes to all the different kinds of flour that was really around there. Best weed in the world. Pretty much at that point, it was, it was, it was where you could find some of the best weed in the world was on the Grateful Dead Lot. To share a little bit of my experience with Dead Lot, which I think I've, I've touched on before in the show because it was very formative for me. I mean, that was where I discovered really good weed. First time that somebody was like, yo, uh, String Cheese Incident is playing Let's Go Down. And I was like, oh, I'm not into hippie music. You know, I'm, I'm a hip hop head. They were like, oh, we're not going for the concert. <laughs> we're going to go shopping. So get all your lunch money. And, you know, I remember walking onto that lot and there was like this gnome-like, you know, like little woke man with a with a knit beanie on going, ganja chocolates, ganja chocolates. And I just remember seeing Shakedown Street for the first time and being like, oh my God, it felt like a little village out of Lord of the Rings. And they're just selling all these like magical items. I remember, you know, buying a sack of weed for $60 and being like, oh, it's so much fluffier. It's so much bigger. You know what I'm saying? Because this weed hasn't been compressed down to little nuggets. And it was like... Oh my God, this is where I want to spend all my lunch money. This is a wonderland. Like, you know, I as a kid who wasn't knowledgeable about specific strains at the time at all, right? But I just knew quality when I saw it, when I tasted it, when I smelled it. And I was like, this is the center of good weed. It's not a guy. It's not a one plug somewhere in Philly. It's this traveling band of lunatics that bring fantastic drugs with them everywhere they go. Another thing about cannabis and the Grateful Dead scene and lot and tour is it not only spread great cannabis across the country, and we're going to get into how it spread great cannabis genetics, 
across the country. It also spread knowledge about the plant in general. There were some weed historians who basically had podcasts that were never recorded. You just have to find them on Deadlot, and they tell you the whole Jack Herrer rhymes with terror book from start to finish. Also, people who understood about the cultivation of this plant, and also, you know, way ahead of the game in terms of vertical integration. In a time with no regulations around this plant, you could meet somebody who would be the person who had grown the cannabis in California, processed all of it, distributed it all over the country, driving it around, and selling it to you direct to consumer, all in the version of one wizard, or spun-out hippie chick, (laughs) or various other lot denizens. So, you know, did that inform you as somebody who was just beginning this journey as a grower? And what was your first attempt's to grow cannabis like what year was it what was the equipment involved you know take us uh on the first step of that journey you know ten thousand plants begins with a single little garden yeah so i was 17 and i went to my brother's house and i said i'm going to take over your closet and grow a plant i just started one seed and i grew up my brother's closet it didn't work out too well it was like the buds were getting snipped you know it was just they were at the end of the day i wasn't getting half the plant it was just it was a nightmare so that sucked And I actually turned 18 that following year. And then I graduated high school and I moved out and I got my own apartment. Me and a good friend decided to go on Grateful Dead tour, do the whole summer tour in 1991. Obviously go out to Indiana, um, Deer Creek. I think it was June 6th, 1991. First show summer tour. Went down to Shakedown Street looking for some bud. And that's when I met Joe B and Peabud. We have Kind Bud, Kind Bud. I'm like, okay. Can you just explain what Shakedown Street is? Shakedown Street's a place that they call in the Grateful Dead parking lots. It's like where everybody grow, goes and bends and sells all their goods. Abdullah said it best with the Lord of the Rings phrase earlier. <laughs> There's a guy playing a pan flute like... Yeah. <laughs> There's a guy sell, selling uh, egg rolls called Jerry Rolls. There's... There's people bending Guatemalan clothing and every acid shrooms, every other drug you can find. But anyway, long story short, I ended up meeting Joe B and P Bud in the parking lot. They were selling Kind Bud. I go, what do you guys got? Like, well, we got this stuff called Dog Bud. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm like, why Dog Bud? Like, well, you smoke it. It gets you so high. You roll around like a dog. And he goes, and some people call it chem weed. I'm like, all right, let me look at this stuff. They pull it out. I'm like, wow. It was some of the nicest, smellingest, very skunky, earthy, hit me in the face type fire that was like wow never seen pot like this this is killer you could tell right away it was killer weed and i was like i'll take whatever i can they only limited it to me like a quarter i think and i had to pony up 120 bucks it was 120 bucks back then or 125 they actually asked for the five there five 500 bucks an ounce wow over 60 dollars an eighth at yep. the bulk quarter remember 1991 that's crazy yeah that's expensive there was also pretty not a lot of butter on that summer, if I remember. It was pretty tight. It's definitely a uh, seller's market when they say you can only buy this much. Exactly. <laughs> and I realized I realize why. You know, I got that bag and there was like, what, 16 shows left on that tour. I think I, I tried to make make it so I'd had a bowl for each night of each show. You know, I think I had made it into 16 bowls. I smoked that and I was like, wow, this shit's killer. And just out of curiosity, what were you smoking out of? I had a snodgrass, a glass piece by Bob Snodgrass. Nice. So I was smoking on a glass at that point. That's one of the things I learned early on in the Dead Lodge. You found the glass in the early 1990 year. God, I was Yeah. 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 I smoked this. I was like, wow, this shit's awesome. Luckily, I kept in touch. I, 
exchange phone numbers on an index card and we went on our way. Didn't see them the rest of tour. Didn't even bump into them. Called them right after tour and I was like, is there any way I can get some of this bud? It was the best bud I ever smoked in my life. I mean, and everybody that smoked with me was like, wow. So I knew it was something really killer. That is a serious focus group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, we smoked that and I ended up, um, I'm like, how can I get some of this back? you know, to the East. And we ended up working our way out to where we exchanged some, some things. And, uh, I got an ounce back in Massachusetts in August. And actually that ounce had 13 seeds in it. And I was like, this is the shit that I'm fucking going to grow. These are the first seeds I'm growing in my new house, you know, my, yeah. my house. So, so, so this is a great moment, not only for you, but for pretty much everyone who smokes weed. All right. So we're talking about bag seeds and this is something that we've talked about on the show before. This is all, of course, Sensimia, high-grade cannabis that has no seeds in it, right? But of course, as we have all learned, even the kindest of bud will have some trace amounts of seeds, right? In an ounce, you'll find a couple once in a while, you know, like you'll miss one and it'll end up in your grinder or something, make your joint taste funny. But if you can locate them, right, or you can you come across them, you find these little needles in a haystack, you can now reproduce this canvas. I mean, that's that's pretty incredible if you know how to do it, right? You've got the source in the bottom of this bag, right? And amidst, yeah. amidst shake and, and stems and, and you know, uh, little leaves, right? You find fucking gold. Like, what was that feeling like? What, what, and, and what was your first thought? Like, did you picture yourself just wearing a tuxedo made of dog weed? <laughs> My first reaction probably was like, what the fuck? I just paid $500 and got 13 seats at the bottom of this bag. <laughs> but I, uh, I probably, I, I was shocked a little bit that I, I was like, wow, this is, this is awesome. You know, I was like, I'm going to grow these. I started them right away. I was hoping I had something similar. To what was you know and it was weird they weren't in the buds they were 13 just loose seeds and then i called huh. you know joan uh, and i was like yeah, you know i got 13 seeds in an ounce and like you did they were like what do you mean we've been looking for seeds of that stuff i'm like well <laughs> they were in the bottom of the bag who made the ounce up i mean jesus so they're like yeah they, they were dumbfounded too but you know but that's actually interesting it, it, it's almost like some sort of divine intervention happened because it's like we're talking about a bunch of buds of incredibly high grade cannabis and then at the bottom of the bag there's a bunch of seeds i mean this is fate i i think of that jeff goldblum line from jurassic park life will find a way <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and just to give people a quick idea so when we talk about sinsamia weed which has been the high grade weed since the 1970s that is because it has no seeds. Sin sensimia without oh, seeds no. in Spanish. Seed. <laughs> no, the song. <laughs> and the way you do that is removing all of the male plants from the cultivation environment. And you know, I don't have. I hope I don't have to explain further to everyone. You know, when a mommy and a daddy plant love each other very much. Uh, <laughs> So Go on. <laughs> All right, let me just put this purple light on and cue the cue the funk music. Um, so you know when you used to get uh, brickweed, it was full of seeds, and it was a pain in the ass because they were the seeds of brickweed, not really what you want to grow, and all this work to clean them, but. To find the occasional seed in some sensimia, uh, you know, does happen. Life does find a way. But this definitely seems like fate. You know, we speak on this podcast of this plant as having 
its own life force, its own desires. The reason that cannabis is so hard to suppress or eradicate in any way. And I think that these 13 seeds knew they had a new home with you. Find you, you find them. I think you have an initial reaction that reminds me of those old parables of the person who doesn't realize that they've, you know, been given this great gift. Jack, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the magic yeah, <laughs> but what, what happens next? I started, um, I think, four of, the, four of the first seeds I started, and, and I labeled them all chem dog. Because he told me it was dog bud and some called it chem weed. No W. Uh, no W. That's right. And I was the one that labeled them from day one, so I know. <laughs> Just C-H-E-M-D-O-G. All one was, word or was there all, a space? I was all one word. It was all one word. No W, people. You hear that? No, no W. And this yes. is the first use in literature. So, and, and, you know, primary <laughs> primary source documents. And that's when the and that's when the Chem 91 was born. I, I grew it under a 250 watt HPS high pressure sodium in a little closet under a little um hydro hydroponic unit, little Emily's garden, six pot passive uh, hydroponic system with like geo rocks and um, rock wall cubes. That's a lot of, of, of technical jargon. Could you describe the visual of this? Because I know from what you said, I've seen these components, right? And I know that this is actually a very beautiful setup. This is like a, you know, it's like a Japanese garden in outer space or some shit. <laughs> can, can you describe what this looked like? Yeah, it's just a regular 250 watt high pressure sodium with the ballast built in it. And then below that picture, like a bus pan they use at restaurants, you know, those square little bus pans you put dishes in. It was about that size with a top on. You filled that with water and there were six pots in that, six square pots. And then those are filled with stone. And then you put your Rockwell cube with the clone in it, watered from the bottom up. It was a passive hydroponic system with a little air stone and a water to make it you know circulate and you just put your you know your food your couples three four gallons of water in the in the bin let it rip change it every month this is kind of at the dawn of indoor growing you know not the earliest days but certainly the first wave of indoor growing and just so people understand when you say a cutting or a clone that's in essence just snipping a leaf off of a plant, rooting it separately, and you can grow the same exact genetic plant, including if it was a female plant, it will grow another female plant. And that's how you're able to keep propagating this same genetic line over and over again. And that was back then when you have to take, you have to borrow a buddy's car to go to the grocery store because you were afraid to bring your own car because you're registering, you know, you're how your home address is registered to where you were and stuff. So back then it was really stealth to go to even the pro store. It was, you know, I was only 18. You know, I'd get thrown in jail back then. It would suck to just want to grow hydroponic tomatoes back then. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're like, look, I'm 18. I just love, I got these heirloom seeds. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. That's that's how you'd have to talk about it in the grow store. You couldn't use the word meat or they'd throw you out. It's like using the word bong in the head shops. That's why when you when you drive around to the, when you go to the hydro store, many people still living in prohibition places bring a a loaf of crusty Italian bread, some nice fresh mozzarella, and some basil, olive oil, salt, and pepper. And then you're like, "Listen, man, I'm, I'm clearly making a sandwich." <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! So when when did you realize you had? You know, I think you knew you had very special tomatoes, but now as a grower, you are able to start sharing them with people. H how did that change your life? 
So everywhere I went, it was like, wow, you have some of the best weed we've ever smoked. Especially the Grateful Dead shows, there's lots of people from different areas. They knew I had something very special. And at that point, I think the sour came out. So they everybody started knowing that the chem was in the sour. So Yeah, so the lineage, you know, the royal family tree of gas. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Can you tell us about how Chem Dog ended up being the parent of all these different amazing strains? I mean, New York Sour Diesel. There's so many different stories on a sour, man, but I, I'm going to say I'm pretty convinced that the mom of it is the chem um, and even the sour guys. There's a few different people about that fight over who started the sour. I don't want to get into it. I mean, of course, because it's a legendary it's, strain, but but what yeah. did you know? I mean, like, I, I, I would know I'm pretty, over a lot I'm of pretty pot. I'm pretty positive that the Chem 91 is the mom of it, and it's just a bag seed from Chem 91. But, you know, I don't think there was much being made with the side. You know, the Albany Sour Kids can tell you one day. They, they, you know, there's so many different stories. But the I, I'm Albany like, Sour Kids, the uh, 1940s doo-wop group? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to go with, the, with definitely being the mom of, of the sour. It was the it was the rival to the little rascals, you know. Yeah. They just history history forgot about the uh, Albany Sour Kids. Uh, Shout out, friends of the podcast. Yeah. They're all I think in their late nineties and still alive because yeah. that yeah. Uh, Albany Sour has strong medicinal properties. <laughs> the Albany Sour Kids is like. We got to use that for something. That's got to go on a t-shirt or something. Oh, Maybe man. that'll be the title of the episode. We'll throw people for a little curve. Is that, fra- is that, fra- is that phrase going to fuck me? <laughs> no. It's canon now. It's, uh, it's well, weed canon now. Yeah, let's turn to the sweet side. Obviously, just kind of rolling through not just the deadlock, but the world at large with the or among the best weed around, you know, opens a lot of doors just in terms of meeting people, of having access to places, of spreading these good vibes wherever you go. How did that play out for you? Oh, I've ended up meeting a lot of people through the flower for sure. I've had Snoop tell me I have some of the best weed he's ever smoked. The year the Giants won the Super Bowl, I was selling weed to their whole offensive line that year. Sick! Um, Are you serious? Yeah. Wait, you're talking about the year that they upset the Patriots real big? The year that, the year that Shockey was with them. Bro! Yo, that was fucking epic. Okay, look, I'm an Eagles fan, okay? Uh, but the Eagles had just lost to the Patriots in the Super Bowl a few years earlier, and watching the Giants, like, fuck up that perfect streak for them was was one of the most satisfying moments of my life. And to think that your weed uh, had anything to do with that, I mean, and it probably did. Look, a team doesn't go into the fucking playoffs on a wild card spot and beat at 18 and 0 team you know what i'm saying they had to be extra focused extra relaxed and you just revealed the secret to me i, I mean like that's crazy these motherfuckers were smoking again because it is that offensive line right like they're the ones who really hammered it the fuck home oh my god bro that's mind-blowing to me actually now that i think about it i was a giants fan at the time uh i remember the quarterback going like red 19 blue seven Cam 91, huh? Cam 91. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Epic shit. Okay, so you're responsible for that giant Super Bowl. Uh, So so what what happened next? Well, what about also the music scene? Met met lots of musicians, but definitely, you know, lots of musicians. Um, Used to help out the guys from Fish, you know. Probably people I shouldn't mention, so I can't mention them. But yeah, there's definitely Obama. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so we can imagine that, you know, what the offensive line of a football team can get out of incredible cannabis, you know, exactly. pain relief, stress yeah. relief, you know, training and competition enhancement. What do you think the musicians got out of it? What did they tell you about why they loved your weed so much? Creativity. They got creativity and they, you know, they got to, you know, their minds, they, it would just help. It's, it's art, you know, it makes sure. just like when I blow glass, I get creativity out of my flower. So. Yeah. I, same. Yeah. I mean, we definitely, you know, it is a constant creative aid for us, not only on this show, but you know, as writers, I'm sure Bean would agree. I mean, getting stoned and writing is a true pleasure. I mean, this is literally what we've done for a living uh, for so, so long. And it, it's true. I mean, I gravitate towards gas, uh, you know, and, and I never really asked myself why necessarily, but it's true that I need my cannabis to stimulate me creatively. Bean, do you have the same thing? I've never tried it without. And <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, there's there's a really interesting study that basically showed when you're high on cannabis, it helps you connect seemingly disconnected ideas. So whether you're talking about a jazz musician in the 30s improvising. Or building a conspiracy theory that involves Monsanto. Yeah. <laughs> God, yes. uh, you know, cue that picture of the guy pointing at all the yeah, arrows and stuff. But yeah, sometimes that create hey, creativity is a uh, could be a good or bad thing. <laughs> but it's certainly, you know, if you liked if you like the jam band music and beyond of the nineties, we, we can thank our illustrious guest today. I, I'm wondering, you know, this is an era where prohibition is a fifty state phenomenon. How did you navigate, on the one hand, your very understandable pride in what you were bringing into the world versus protecting yourself? And, and, and how did you navigate not just ChemDog the strain, but becoming, in a way, ChemDog the person? It was, it was rough. In 2011, I got busted. I was good up until that point, so I navigated pretty well. There's a lot of bobbing and weaving in this business and industry, so um, I did what I could in 2011. I got in trouble. Someone ratted on me. I don't, I don't know who, what, you know, exactly all the details of everything, but so I got ratted on and lost all, you know, my house, my money, and my car, so lost everything. That's all they wanted was, was the money and everything. They, you know, I'd never been in trouble in my life, so, and I still only had 99 plants, but I went federal, so. Oh man, that's fucked. Okay, so yeah, so you've got the feds on your ass. You're basically shut down uh, because somebody ratted on you. I mean, that's like the, that's the worst fucking thing, man. No, I say that, and that was 2011. So I feel that that brought me back a few years in this whole industry. I think I would have been a little bit more ahead of the game if that didn't happen. You know? Yeah. And so, what was your your next move after that? I mean, at, at this point, you're down and out. Do you even have? Uh, you know, the genetics you've been working oh, yeah. with. Yeah. Okay. But you don't have a place to grow them or, or anything else. Yeah. The genetics. One thing about genetics, whenever you find good genetics, make sure you have a good couple of friends and make sure you back them up with your friends. Mm -hmm. Number one thing. Mm -hmm. I could say I, 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 I have you, if you've ever heard of the doomsday seed bank in Norway, which is like built into the side of a glacier. It looks crazy. Yeah. yeah, with all wow. food seeds to protect us in case of the worst case scenario. 
I have it on extremely good authority that there are multiple kinds of cannabis strains in there. So doesn't <laughs> doesn't help you out in 2011, but just to give everybody a little That's comfort. Cool. I'm wondering just to go, you know, back a little bit, not to take you re through the trauma of that, but what was the first inclination that something was going wrong? Um, when I got up and I looked out the window and I saw like eight or nine cops walking around my house outside. <laughs> Besides that, I know. Yeah, yeah, that'll tip you off. All right, so it yeah. was sudden. So, <laughs> yeah, knowledge and, um, of this was very sudden. Yeah, and I found out they were raiding my house where I lived and where I was growing at the same time. They were in two different towns. So they were raiding both places at the same time. They They wanted to put me in jail for a year and a half or like two years just for tax evasion, even though I did tax evade, they wanted a half a million dollars in forfeiture. And my lawyer is like, no, he doesn't have that kind of money. So we went back and we did like a $250,000 forfeiture thing. And they're like, no, but we'll take whatever he has in escrow for when he sells his house. So I sold my house and I had made $325,000 profit in escrow. So they're like, we'll take that, his car, and we'll give you five years probation. And my lawyer's like, no, let's do three years probation. He's already given you guys all this stuff, but he's never been in trouble before, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, sure, three years probation. Three so, years. Oh, my God. And forfeiture, just to clarify, means that you know where that money ends up in the pocket of that department. Like, yeah. that's how civil forfeiture works. Like, there's a really excellent last week tonight from several years ago that explains it really well. But basically, this is a way for the police who, in, in case you didn't believe it before, I mean, I feel like this is proof that they're a gang, that they're a government-sanctioned gang, is that they have a process called civil forfeiture where they can bust someone like you for growing cannabis, by the way, and just cannabis, right? And then not just take what you have, right? A regular criminal just takes what's out in the open, right? These motherfuckers use the law to make you sell your house and then take the profits from that. And it's not like this is going in an evidence locker somewhere or it's getting donated to the local schools. This is going in to fund your, either your local police department or the feds, right? This is how they steal from citizens who have never hurt anyone, by the way. Literally, we've yep. been talking to you this whole time. We've talked about dead lot. We've talked about music and weed and gassy terps. No one has died. <laughs> no one has died nope. this nope. whole time. And nope. you were robbed. You were robbed by people who claimed you were a dangerous individual when they're the ones targeting uh, an innocent person. Yep. But this, in, in, in fairness, this was during an era of history when there was no murders and there was no <laughs> wage theft from, you know, low-level employees at oh, companies. Yeah, the there wasn't, yeah. There weren't any kind of like really, corporate it, ripoffs happening. There was very little else to do. No, and they're <laughs> and they're they're kind of nasty too. The way they work because they were like, my parents owned the house that I was growing in. They were just the landlords. They had no clue about it or anything. They were just the owners of the house. So they're like, if you don't, if you want to fight this case, Mister Krasnowski, we're going to charge your parents with harboring a grow house. So that's why they made up a plea, and I had to basically plea, and that was that. Yeah, they threatened you, man. They hit you where it hurts. Government blackmail. And there's three dispensaries within a mile radius of where I got raided. So literally in the span of a decade, right, the guy who is responsible for chem weed and sour diesel in the world, right, has all of his shit taken away. And within 10 years, in the same location, there's people who have gotten their licenses through cronyism in state government selling probably 
if not your strains, strains derived from your strains. Yep, yep, yep. They sell in Stardog right around the corner, so it was derived from the strain. That's that's bullshit. And I think that this is like a really deep irony. I mean, it doesn't get any, you know, doesn't it get any realer than that? Like, injustice is not over in cannabis. You know what I'm saying? I think like a lot of people think of like, oh yeah, you know, it's like in Blow when you got busted for flying with pounds of weed in the 70s. Like, no. No. Ten years ago, people in Massachusetts who grow really good weed were getting busted by the feds. And of course, today, you know, in lots of states and around and around the world, and of course, you know, always worth making the point: people people held in cages today for what's legal and profitable. Of course, uh, elsewhere. So you know, shout out to all those people. You know, great moments in weed history. We do want to show this culture as winning and as life affirming. But within that, often some of the great moments are coming back from adversity, coming back from being targeted by this prohibition. So you know, we can assume you had a few really, really hard years. Personally, I'm sure. Financially, I'm sure. Spiritually. Take us to the next great moment on your journey. When was the next time you were able to grow a plant of your own? Well, I'm going to say this. Basically, um, right now, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm actually a felon. So Massachusetts is a good program. I'm a felon. And I was able to get badged to um, be able to come into the recreational market in Massachusetts. All right. At least they did something right. I was going to say they have a pretty good program as far as that goes. If you're a felon and you want to get into the market, you know, from the legacy market over to the to the mark, you know, there's a good two, three year gap still left that I suggest if you want to get into the market, you know, into the recreational legal market from legacy market, you should switch over. And a quick shout out to the former commissioner of cannabis for Massachusetts, Shailene Title, who we had on this program. You can check it out in an episode called The Commissioner of Cannabis is Cool as Fuck. And, you know, it's no coincidence that her and like-minded people wanting to make a good system would have an effect like that. We can't undo the injustice that happened to you, but we can in some ways avoid compounding it you know there are states where people who were busted for weed are specifically prohibited from entering the industry and so that aspect of things really does matter it really did at least leave the door open for you to come back in and to come in in a legal way actually i'm also a social equity app for um the place I work with right now too. So, uh, you know, being busted, they do open up. They're, they're pretty good in this state. In 2020, I met up with like, let's, we're going to go back to how I grew after my 10 year hiatus. So in 2020, I met Eric Williams and Meg Sanders. Um, Eric came over to my house. We started talking because he wanted to get glass for his stores. He wanted to be my, I also build glass. So he wanted to be um, a supplier of my glass to his two stores that he just opened in Lee, Massachusetts. And started a conversation. We did it. I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I'll get you some glass. And then he came over to my house one day and um, I smoked a joint with him of Chem, Chem D in my living room with him. And he was just blown away. He's like, this is probably the best joint I've ever not had as far as flower goes, but the best experience I ever had smoking it was with you in your living room of your weed. He's like, would you, you know, we kind of kicked around the idea of maybe me coming to grow for him. And I was like, I started entertaining, listening to it. And I'm like, you know, I never really wanted to leave the state and go to Colorado or California. I've had opportunities to go out there. I'm just, my family's here. This is where I'm grounded. So I was like, this sounds like a good thing. And we just started talking. And next thing you know, boom, I start working for Canna Provisions. 
and I'm the um, director of cultivation for them. Got about 2,000 plants in my facility right now. I got like 800 flowering, and that is the first time I've grown since I got busted. Wow. This episode is just stacked with great moments because that is such a beautiful sight. You know what I'm saying? To think, you know, from the moment that, you know, you really demonstrated your artistry with this plant, right? All the way to the one where you were persecuted for being good at growing weed, you know, for growing really fucking fire weed and doing it with passion, by the way. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's clear that from the beginning, your interest in then in this has been about the quality of the plant. Like not once in this whole conversation have you been like, oh, and I made bags of money on that one. And suddenly to have it all ripped away, have someone tell you, you can't do the thing that you are best at. To suddenly then waking up essentially in a world, just a matter of years later, where you are a cultivator you have an actual title i bet you have a business card that says director of cultivation on it this is the person who should be growing weed you fuckers of massachusetts are so lucky that this guy is there growing 800 plants of his fucking fire ass weed so before you eat your clam chowder tonight you know uh <laughs> thank you brush your, your uh, teeth with it right yeah thank <laughs> your god tom brady <laughs> for this guy <laughs> What's the difference of the weed economy from the Grateful Dead lot to the government-regulated version of it? Well, honestly, the government-regulated version of it, it's actually the same price as it was in 1991. So you can get the same chem dog that I had in, or 92, that I was selling for 100 bucks a quarter in our stores, except it's just legal now. Um, the best parts are I can grow as many plants as I want in my facility, not worry about a damn thing. Um, the challenging part, just a lot of challenging. The testing is challenging. Um, just, you know, you got to get, everything's regulated. Everything's on camera. So everything's, you know, everything's got to be weighed. You drop a leaf on the ground, weighed. If you drop butt on the ground, throw it away. So there's a lot of, you know, but you, you learn that quick. You learn all that stuff real quick. The, the money that they make you go through as far as regulations of testing this and this and that, it's just a money pit for the businesses. Um, but besides that part of it, I'm I'm trying to I pretty much am trying to put out the same legacy flower I put out 20 10 years ago in the stores so you can buy pretty much the same shit as you can get in the legacy market in our stores that's my goal I, I'm convinced you can grow killer flower on any capacity level as long as you do it the right way you grow fire and when we talk about the trendy strains of today whether it's the dessert strains or whatever's coming next or whatever people are smoking on that even I won't hear about for a few months, you know, up in the hills. Like a lot of trends and a lot of styles, they come and go. Sometimes they seem a little uh, whack in, yeah. in retrospect. And you're like, oh, we were all hyped on Blue Dream for a minute. Yeah. Oh, you know? my That's... God. The Gorilla Glue <laughs> craze. Oh, yeah. And now, <laughs> and now. Hey. We just got Blue Dream back in the facility. <laughs> oh, no shit. So are you endorsing Blue Dream? As a as as a smokable strain that gets people high. Oh, I'm I'm, I'm endorsing it for the customers. <laughs> <laughs> for people's grandmas, right? Oh, there's, there's 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 something out. You got you got to hit everybody. There's something out there for everybody. You know, like Dave was saying, I, uh, the trends. The trends. They're like, you got that walnut weed, bro. You got that peanut weed. I got to keep purple weed on the shelf. I got to keep, you know, uh, yeah, the array of everything, you know. We just passed 31 years since you since you popped those seeds that you acquired on Deadlot. 
And I would just say I've smoked a lot of weed since I first had ChemDog that I liked as much. I don't think I've smoked anything that I liked more. And there's a timelessness to it that has outlasted all of these trends. You know, what do you think it is about the plant itself, that specific strain that makes it so special, so indelible? You know, when I uh, used to work at High Times and you would come through the office every once in a while for a visit that shit was on the yeah. calendar you found out three or four days in advance and i mean a lot of people came through that office a lot of weed came through that office but this would go out on a all points bulletin why do you think we've told your story what what is the story of this plant what is it what makes it so special? I think it's a turf profiles you know they're, they're, they were all different the chem 91 has that skunky earthy really hit you OG-ish, that kind of flavor profile. The Chem 4 is more of a lemony profile. And the Chem D, which I that was started in the year 2000, I call that one, that's like the, my millennial seed. That was when I started in 2000. That's also in GMO. So that whenever you smoke GMO and you have that taste of like garlicky, very, you know, earth, earthy, garlicky, almost like DMT, that's all Chem D. There's no really cookie flavor in GMO. There's are all those ter- those profiles are all yeah, so that that GMO that you smoke that's ChemD. That's so interesting. Well, there was that great Austin Sour Gang song from 1936. There's some chem in the cookies. <laughs> if you if you remember that little bitty. No, look, There's man, I am straight up Albany Sour Kids till the day I die. All right, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I'm Team Albany Sour Kids. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you describe when you describe each of these different variations on the chem line, they each came from a different one of those seeds from that same bag. Correct, correct? exactly. They're one of the thirteen seeds. The chem four. Um, Joe B and Peabud started in 2006. I actually reconnected with them online on Overgrow uh, forum back in, I don't know, mid 2000s. And we ended up blinking back up and talking and I ended up sending them the last four of my chem seeds. I think I had two more left and after I got ready, they took them. But there was four I sent to Peabud and Joe B. And that's when they started the chem one, two, three, and four. And that's where there's a chem three floating around out there, which a lot of people don't have. But the chem four... That's where they started. And that was 2006. And the Chem D was the original 13 that I started myself in 2000. And the Chem 91 was started in 1991, along with the Chem Sister. That was in the first four. Well, Chem Dog, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. You know, you really were at the forefront of such an important element of cannabis culture, right? Which is the gas, right? There's a reason that Sour Diesel is so big on the East Coast and OG Kush is so big on the West Coast. It's because if you're in the 20% of people that smokes 80% of the weed, this is probably the stuff that you're going to want to smoke all fucking day and all night. And truly, it has paved the road to modern cannabis in a lot of ways. So if you're somebody who does not know this aspect of cannabis history, we hope you learn something. And we hope that every time you taste that gas and whatever strain and whatever form you taste it, that you give respect to ChemDog and you big up all the people that were responsible for bringing that turf profile to your lips. This has been incredibly fun. If you want to get some ChemDog weed, 
If you are in Massachusetts, you're in luck. You can go to Canna Provisions in Holyoke and in Lee, Massachusetts, and you can get you some chem dog weed. So go check it out. Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you next time on Great Moments of Weed History. Yeah, we'll see you next weed. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.